Hello, Pubcast listeners, and welcome to this next episode of the Agile Pubcast. And this one is another summary of a conversation we had with one of our heroes in our prestigious Pints series. This was Esther Derby, a huge influence on me and Jeff in our early career as Agile practitioners, coaches and trainers. And we spoke to Esther about all sorts of things, not just retrospectives, but leadership management uh, and how the COVID pandemic has affected her work. Uh, during these times so we hope you'll enjoy it um, it's another one of those prestigious pints that you can see in full if you were to look over on our patron page patron.com forward slash the agile podcast have a look there if you want to see full details on how to see the full hour-long interview with esther we hope you're well and we hope you enjoy the episode here we go play the jingle Welcome to the bar, sir. Hello, barkeep. <laughs> Throwing the stuff around. Yeah. Supposed to, it's supposed to keep a tidy bar, Jeff. That's what they say. Tidy bar is a tidy mind. Yeah. How are you, sir? I'm okay. <laughs> I'm, um, yeah, not too uncertain. Good. I would say that. Yeah, I think it's just kind of going from one day to the next at the moment. And um, yeah, it's just. So the recent announcements of hope haven't um, lifted your spirits any. Little bit, little bit. I think it's uh, it's nice to have um, dates. I didn't expect dates to be honest. Did you not? No, I did. I thought they would just give milestones. No, but no, I thought. I think it's very dangerous, isn't it, to put dates in people's minds. Well, I think I was, I was only chatting to someone this morning, actually, about how I found that fascinating from an Agile perspective. Effectively, we've got from our government an Agile roadmap, which is subject to change. So getting the whole whole population used to the concept that, yeah, we have dates in, but they might change. Yeah, I think but people, don't read, people don't read the, the small print, do they? I think um, it's time for the country to grow up a bit. You say a date and people hear the date, don't they? Mm-hmm. Like already on social media people say 12th of june is it tw- oh, no, 21st of june that's it mm-hmm. we'll all be out there'll be people lining the streets with street parties but you know that might not happen i don't think people read but equally people. i've also seen memes saying on the 20th of june the new variant comes out <laughs> which means <laughs> the, the day's finished so people are aware that it's it's subject to conditions and i think that's a, a good thing and i think um did you realize I didn't realise this until somebody told me this week um, that England's, I think it's England's first European Championships game is on the 20, uh, coincidentally on the 22nd of June, okay. which is the day after uh, Boris has suggested all the... Hangover uh, day. Yes, exactly. All, <laughs> the, all, the, all the lockdown constraints will be over. But we'll, it's just bizarre to think that I still can't, can't quite fathom that Six, we're in lockdown now, and in less than six months, we'll be technically out of it. I just can't fathom that. Oh, four months, isn't it? But the yeah, and and you know, the first the first thing is the eighth of March, then the twenty first of March, and all these different things along the way. So we will. It's not like we're going to get to the twentieth of June and be nervous about. It. We will know a lot more. Oh more. yeah, things so, will have massively changed. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's. Um, I suppose you can't really turn up for a chat without talking about that but that's not the main purpose of us being here today the main purpose of us being here today is to 
is to reflect on another awesome conversation we had with one of our heroes. Mm. But um, what are you drinking today? I'm, I'm, um, you can still go to a pub, can't you, and have a soft drink? Of course soft you drink. can. Just um, do, do you serve orange squash? Well, I hope you yeah. do because I'm drinking it. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm drinking a non-alcoholic IPA. It's called Ilkley. the Ilkley. Well, Ilkley's the brewery. The, the beer is called the Virgin Mary, uh, which which sounds quite um, religious. Biblical. Um, yeah, I'm not quite... It doesn't explain why. Oh, it says the Mary Jane reimagined. Maximum flavour, minimum guilt. So alcohol-free. So I assume the Mary Jane is their other brand, which is alcoholic, but this is the, the Virgin That's a Mary. Idea, yeah. mm, so obviously Virgin... Virgin cocktails are um, synonymous with no alcohol, aren't they? Yeah. Alcohol-free yeah. cocktails, so yes. I'll be honest, it's not my favourite alcohol-free no. beer, but it's a kind of beer-flavoured squash, which... What would you say is your, your favourite alcohol-free... If we were looking, looking, plugging for sponsors here, Jeff, what would you say your favourite is? Well, as you know, I'm not really one for favourites, no, but, but I did have one... Um, I, I stumbled across one in a in a supermarket a week ago, and I enjoyed it so much, I actually ordered a case of it, which is arriving in the next twenty minutes. So I'm not going to. So I've got, I've got a whole case of non-alcoholic beer coming. Mm. Um, I'm not going to tell you what that is now, but I may have it on the next podcast. Yeah, there we go. That's, that's an incentive for people to listen to the next one. Mm. So it was that enjoyable, but it actually made it as my favourite. Even though I'm not really one for favourites, you don't do favourites, generally. So, yeah, it was that good. But anyway, back to back yes. to the topic of the day. Yes. Cheers, by the way, and we're, we're, we'll 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 raise a, a toast, another toast to Esther Derby, who we had a very good long chat with. It's one of those conversations where you think, "Crikey, we've been talking for over an hour already." Yeah, we, we must let this poor lady go. Um, and yeah, one of our one of our heroes from. Well, from when we started, really, she's. Um, for those of you that don't know a lot about the background, she was a member, founding member of the Scrum Alliance, very heavily involved in the founding of the Agile Alliance. Um, obviously, a, a well-known author. Almost anyone in the Agile space will have read at least one of her books, if not more. Um, and we, you know, we, 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 probably one of the first books we ever bought wasn't it when we were agile coaches at bt esther's agile retrospective book yeah i think it was i, I was looking at that i think it's 2006 that book was published mm. i think it was okay which so then was, it wouldn't have been no so i think it was actually i mean i might, I might have to fact that might have to be fact checked i'm sure i am um, i credited it in a in a workshop or something 2006 um so yeah that was that was a few years after the scrum alliance was formed i think but um mm. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was, um, she but, um, was a huge inspiration for me. Back well, that was the first. That was the first topic of conversation, really, wasn't it? The fact that you know, we we were guilty, as many are, of, sort of just attributing a, a lazy label to her, of, of the, <laughs> the retrospective lady. But she's a lot more than that. And that's the first clip we're going to play now. Um, yeah, I think there are there are people who know me for that, and that's okay. You know, I mean. You know, I think it was uh, doing retrospectives in a in a thoughtful way as a contribution to the field. Mm. So I I don't reject that title, but you're right. It's it's you know it's this much of what I do. Yeah, we I mean I've had the fortune of, of working in partnership with her at clients on things like conflict management and facilitation skills and 
gender leadership type of stuff. And, and she actually used that phrase, didn't she? She called herself a generalist. Yes. In, in a lot of ways, I'm in terms of leadership and management, I'm a generalist. Mm-hmm. You know, but that's that's hard for people to figure out. Oh, how can she help me? She said, "Well, whatever your problem is, I can probably figure out something that will be helpful as long as it's not deeply technical, because I yeah. haven't written code in a long time." Um, uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of people don't really realise that she's got a lot of strings to her bow, and I think, um, and I'm guilty of this as well. As I, I very much refer to I suppose not just retrospectives, but generally facilitation um, and not um, anything, facilitating of anything. And and there's memories I have of very difficult workshops um, that we used to be part of um, back in the the gathering days. And and Esther would be one of those those voices that when Esther spoke, generally other people listened. Yes. Yeah, very. We use that phrase before. Soft words, strongly spoken. And yeah. She was very. And she, um, she would be able to diffuse, um, or bring a sense of calm to mm-hmm. most uh, very some very animated meetings that I remember back in, back in the day. Yeah, yeah. And I, that that phrase of oh, I can, you know, whatever your problem is, as long as it's not deeply technical, I could probably help you with it. That sums Esther up I think for me is you know I've reached out to her with a range of different questions from all sorts of different fields in the past and she's been able to to relate to them but the retrospective thing is something that that really just came along at exactly the right time for the community it was that yes. that hugely important ceremony that part of the agile framework that everyone seemed to think wow there's a lot of potential for value here but how the hell do we do this well you know it's not something that we've we've got the skills or the experience to do but when you think about it, it's like how that's such a huge gap that how how could that ever be missed you think but um yeah it was it back it back in 2003 2004 it was it wasn't um, a specific ceremony it wasn't well we had we we had uh, post-mortems didn't we and autopsies dreadful things that people dreaded going to but it was about finding out who screwed up and you know, blame, who's blame gonna, it, yeah yeah who's going to be held accountable for for what went wrong um and you know that that shift to more appreciative inquiry and you know open collaborative reflection i think is, is huge and she was definitely at the forefront of that with diana larson let's not forget and so we it was quite interesting for me to just hear a little bit about how she got into that because that wasn't yeah, where she, uh, that wasn't her primary focus, it was something that was quite important at that point in time. Could be a little bit of a clip in that one here. Well, so um, Diana and I were introduced to each other by Norm Kerr, mm-hmm. who wrote the book on project retrospectives. So at the, you know, at, at the time he wrote that book, you know, projects could last a year or two or five. You know, so the three of us had started the retrospective facilitators gathering and that's where um we first started thinking about you know how can we do this in a more compressed Hmm. instead of a year what do you do if you've got you're looking at two weeks or a month yeah those did you ever go to one of those retrospective facilitators gatherings i'm gonna say no but I might have, and I've forgotten. But I don't. Where, give me an idea what they would have looked like. Where they would have been? Well, they were they, they were all over the place, and the, the the type of people that were involved in them 
if you look back now, it's one of those almost kind of, um, I'm probably going to use the, the wrong kind of metal here, but almost like a band-aid type community. Right. You look back and think, Christ, you know, Gene Tobacco is part of that. Yeah. All of these amazing people, you know, Carl Scotland people, all of them that have gone on and added huge amounts of value in, all, in their own right, but all of those minds, great minds, in the same place, focused on the same topic of providing guidance to the community about such an important topic, I think it's a really underappreciated part of the history of Agile. Is it still going on now then a lot? Has it stopped? I have to be honest and say I don't know. Which which I'm a bit ashamed to say. But um, it's something I probably have to to look into. But But it was was fascinating because I didn't yeah like you said I didn't realise the story of how Agile retrospectives the book and I didn't realise that Norm Kurth was such a um, an instrumental part of Esther's um, introduction to it. I didn't. I never realised that they would have met and they would mm. you know, they would have formed that that, that uh, uh, alliance together around yeah. retrospectives. I knew of Norm's book, but I didn't um, didn't realise it was so closely um, inspired by um, it, it inspired Esther so much mm. uh, through through contact with him directly. Of course, we, we're assuming that everybody's heard of Norm. You know? Maybe they haven't, but if you haven't heard of Norm and, and the book, you've probably heard of uh, heard of him indirectly in terms of the prime directive of retrospectives. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's such a... And actually, the whole reductionist labelling thing is a topic that came up throughout the conversation, but that's how most people associate, or what most people associate non-curve with, which is a little bit unfair, but yeah. it's, a, it's certainly a big part of it. Yeah, and that group, I think, to, to summarise that group, as not in terms of the retrospective side of things, but just that, that group, you know, I think about of those people involved, generally speaking, there was a huge, huge um, theme of positive uh, interpretation of, of human potential. They, they believed in the potential um, value-add and positive intent of people in general. Um, and that... That spans from actually the capability to do stuff, but also the capability to learn stuff. And and that's something that that came up right. Well, I think people can develop almost anything. It's it's what's the what's the effort involved and what's the payoff. Mm -hmm. I I think people can develop all sorts of traits. Mm. And, and, you know, our, our brains are plastic. We can we can develop new neural pathways and if we attend to them they will eventually um, carry more weight than what our original habits were hmm. well she wasn't particularly um, confident in her ability to learn chess she she um, was was definitely saying that we, we can learn you know, almost anything if we want to as human beings and that that underlying premise of belief in others is, is something that I associate with her yeah, very much a, um, and she um, she talked quite a lot about. I think she really does value, um, as we all do, the people very much the people element of the agile movement, and that the fact she she's very much um, believes in the power that humans have, but also how sensitive we are and how um, how we need to be at the core of of, of a company's. Uh, DNA. It's about people. It's about mm-hmm. how do you treat people. It's about how managers treat people. And there was a real theme that she um, she feels quite quite passionately about changing the man- management th- management practice over management theory. Mm. 
was something she spoke a lot and quite um quite passionately about yeah yeah um you actually we asked her almost a, a it wasn't a hypothetical business because it's something that we get asked quite a bit you know what why do people resist self-organization she had a, an interesting insight into that. well i think there can be a number of reasons behind that part of it is that um people are are because they're new to it they are not necessarily adept at creating the conditions for healthy self-organization because there's always has to be a balance between you know where are you headed and what are your constraints and and if people don't have those you know it's it can be overwhelming it's like um you know so we have to figure out everything and that means everybody is going to be you know arguing about you know what we're supposed to be doing and how we're supposed to be doing it and and, and that's not that fun yeah. we have you you've you've seen yeah just go away self-organize all right yeah then, over to you and that look of panic on people's faces so what the hell where do we start yeah you know yeah uh, and, and so that's something I that's one clear obvious thing and we, we haven't we haven't cracked that yet no I think some companies are better out than others, and it's inevitably a, a safety thing and, and, a, um, and constraints. You still do need constraints for people to work within. And, and, and Esther made that point that it's not, it's not about chaos. It's not about, um, no, it's not about the lack of constraints. It's actually about anything constraints. And she, she did refer to Dave Snowden's work during the, during the conversation. But um, yeah, it's, it's uh, it's, I don't think every organization has cracked it, and especially given the, you know, the current pandemic when um, companies have, have regressed slightly and, and gone back to um, older ways of working because that's what they felt they needed to do when they didn't mm. have. We can't possibly self-organize now. It will be chaos. People yeah. need to, we need to clamp down on this. We need, people need to, we need to control. We need to take back control. Mm. Well, you actually asked her about that. Um, um, what she's seen, almost mm. the, the bad, uh, but the bad side of pandemic, if you like, which obviously pandemic is the bad, bad thing anyway, but what, the negative reactions, I suppose. Mm. Um, and there was an interesting, um, actually, when she mentioned this, I remember the, the Twitter conversation around this, so I'll just play this now. Well, there was, there, there was a huge run on um, tracking software. As oh, really? As the, yes, there was a huge run. No way. Um, um, you know, companies scrambling to get software installed, key, you know, keystroke trackers and wow. you know, webs, you know, tracking where, what websites people were looking, looking at. It's huge, which really? uh, is so destructive of trust. Yeah. And, and, you know, yeah, I mean, I just, the whole idea of, you know, we have to know what you're doing and your productivity is in your keystrokes. is so, um, antithetical to the kind of work we actually do in developing software i didn't realize that you see i didn't realize that there was a a rush on um, tracking software but i can i can believe it well i think it was to me that was one of those um data points that really highlighted i'll, I'll be really um lazy here and say the good from the bad right mm. uh, but the organizations that really understood and, and bought into the principles of agile, you know, the people over the process type things. They, they they didn't even consider that. That just didn't even come up as an option. No. But the organisations that didn't, 
that were perhaps paying lip service to it. That was a good, it was a clear signal that pff, Agile wasn't going to happen for them because they didn't fundamentally buy in at the principal level. Yeah. That when, when scared, they didn't have trust. Mm. They wanted to um, control. Mm. And what was fascinating to me, and if we'd have had another hour, I'd have loved to have just listened to, I'd have loved to have, we started talking about history and mm. what Esther was sharing with us. You know, her, she's done so much research in this area. The history of management and while you know, history wasn't necessarily a, a subject that I particularly enjoyed at school I could imagine having Esther as my history teacher and, and being <laughs> riveted you know even yeah. so I'll play a little clip there but you know I you know we, we aren't taught the history of management we're taught management theory that is essentially based on observational studies hmm. right so like our management theories are based on how people manage right rather than you know actual motivation of humans and and how people work best in groups mm. you know a lot of the people are probably sick of hearing me say this but a lot of the um, practices that um, have made their way into into productivity thinking are directly tied to extraction of maximum labor because mm. accounting practices early accounting practices emerged on um, plantations using enslaved labor mm. that's where they really started doing oh we have to account for all of our expenditures and all of our outputs to our distant um, owner mm. right it is yeah it's, it's, it's um i was fascinated when she was telling that that um that's that story and that um, uh, unveiling that that history but it is it's staggering but it's it's completely believable isn't it it's, it's it's exactly how it it has played out and we've been heavily influenced by well i i've been heavily influenced by a lot of the ted talks i've seen particularly ken, it reminded me of ken robinson talk again around kind of education educational theory is based on and the school system is very much based on a system based on the, the you know the industrial revolution the 19th century that is how our, our, in this country, our education system has been um, designed, which is completely flawed, and and you could you could argue management theory is is in a similar is flawed in a similar way. It's based on historical um, events that are no longer relevant and, and are completely in, in wrong in, in 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 every respect. Yeah, I mean they were potentially appropriate for certain times in our history but they're certainly not appropriate for for the more no. complex creative you know knowledge type work that we've been doing for the last 20 30 years and is only ever increasing in complexity yeah going forward um and that it's it makes absolute sense when you talk to people that in a complex environment you can't expect an expert to be sitting at the top of the pyramid knowing all the answers and no. making all the decisions that it's just not uh, even if even if it were possible it would take too long yeah. to escalate all the decisions up to that expert and back down again that your competitors would, would, would have your breakfast. Yeah. Um, but that's the I think that's part of the frustration that, that I sensed, although we didn't explicitly ask her around this, but I sensed it, um, that, you know what, things have been like, we've been needing this change for so long, and yet we're still, even though we've made a lot of progress, we're still having the same conversations. Yes. And she, she mentioned that, um, you know, college students, uh, MBA students are still taught this management 
practice based on um, you know manage, management practice of others rather than she talks about the history if people mm. realize the history they would change how they manage yeah the um that's really interesting you touched on this already for me which is that you know, there's she has still has a lot of hope and she's still um really i find it fascinating someone that i look up to that much to uh, to be as open about how she's still learning and still keen to, to, to incorporate other people's thinking and how Dave Snowden's complexities mm. work as it has inspired her and you know, how even as you know, one of the not, she wouldn't label herself this but we were the, one of the queens of facilitation she's still going to conferences attending sessions on facilitation mm. uh, and, and calling them out as you, know, this is, you should get published you know, come, I'm going to put you in touch with my publisher because your stuff's so good um, and we'll, 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 let's give them a bit of a shout out there. And I think remote facilitation is its own thing, you know, its own skill. So I was at a conference in South Africa a couple of years ago, and I wandered into a session on remote facilitation by um, Kirsten Clacy and J. Allen Morris. Mm -hmm. And um, it was the best the best advice on the mechanics of remote facilitation that I had seen. And it, it is its own thing. It, you know, they've written a, a nice little book about it. You know, I, I think maybe it was that, and this, this applies to um, moving workshops online also, is that you just have to be a lot more explicit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. You can't be hand wavy. No. You can, you know, when you're in person, you can kind of, you know, give a general instruction and then people will ask and, and people will <clears throat> be okay kind of figuring it out on their own. But that's not the case in a remote setting. And you found that as well, right? Yeah, exactly. And we, again, following that conversation with Esther, I, I mentioned it, I was in a workshop this week and I mentioned it the following day that you do, I find that you have to be a lot more um, straightforward, a lot, like she says, a lot more explicit when you're asking for things to, or you're facilitating directly with people even in a small group it's um i find myself having to repeat the same instruction uh, two or three times and it's not it doesn't mean to come across as condescending or patronizing but i think just you do need to reinforce the thing it's just you can't pick up on the cues that you would do if you were facilitating in person yeah mm. um, yeah, I mean, as well as picking out things like her current sources of learning and as she's been picking up on what's, what's recent, we also picked her brains on her inspirations uh, from earlier on in her career. Yeah. Uh, I think they, those two people that she mentioned there are worth, worth a bit of a shout out as well. The, the, obvious, the obvious one is Jerry Weinberg. Mm -hmm. I, I met Jerry... Um, in 1991, 90 or 91, somewhere in there. And for those of you who don't know Jerry, he he um, wrote one of the seminal books on, on computer programming, just the psychology of computer programming. And he, he was really um, focused on the human aspects of, of, of um, developing software. Even though he made, he made significant technical contributions, he was on the Mercury project. Um, so meeting him, and and then studying with him and then working with him and i co-taught a workshop with him for the last um, 12 years 
up until the time he retired at age 82. So he, he had an enormous effect on my, on my, uh, both my personal life and my professional life. Mm -hmm. Anyone else? So, um, probably Jean McClendon, who is not in this field. She's actually a, a licensed clinical social worker. Mm -hmm. And um, I learned a lot about how human systems work from her. And um, I learned a lot about openness from her. Jerry is someone that you know, many people that that I would respect would cite as their inspiration. Right. Okay. Um, and it's, that's that's one of my regrets. I had the chance to go on a course that Esther and Jerry were going together, um, and I didn't take that chance. Do you remember oh, when and why you didn't take it? When was um, it? Because I don't remember this. No, it was probably about 15, maybe 12 years ago. Mm. So I'm just trying to think. It was probably when, it's actually probably when Cody was relatively young. And I think it was... Were you still uh, at BT or had you, had you moved on? Uh, I think I'd left. Um, but I think I just had too much going on at home yeah. to be away from home uh, right. at that point in time. And I thought, there'll always be another one. Uh, but it was one of those courses that was very limited, run very infrequently, and there was a waiting list for it. Really? Um, and so I never got back on to the top of the waiting list. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was really good. But what I think um, I've noticed from particularly the clips we've been playing, was that Esther is that, and it was a similar thing with, with Mike as well, was there's, there's a humility to, to even people that... Um, we've put right at the top of our inspirations list. Um, she's still learning now, and she, she's very much. She was quite open to that. That she, yeah, she goes to conferences. She's still learning from um, people in the community now, even um, twenty years on or so since since I first met Esther. So, yeah, I think that's that go, that goes a long way. That um, just backs up how human she is as well. She she talks a lot about the, the humanity. Of, of our work and um, it's nice that you know, she very much backs that up with with her approach as well with her demeanor and like mike was open to the fact that actually some of her some of her material could benefit from um a, a refresh and mm. she gave us a little bit of, a, of an exclusive tease that we're not a going sneak to peek. yeah we're not going to let the cat out of the bag here but you might get a bit of a, an idea as to what might be coming if you listen to the full episode. But yeah, it was, it was brilliant. It was a, a, one of the, like I said at the start, one of those situations where an hour just absolutely flew by. Um, mm. It was a shame that we were doing it in a virtual pub um, rather than um, yeah. over coffee or at a conference sidebar or something like that, which we have in the past. But there was um, what we didn't talk about, and I know that you, you being you, you wouldn't talk about this, but... Um, because Esther obviously wrote a foreword for your first mm -hmm. book, um, and she was a big influence. In uh, she gave you some pretty—is it fair to say some pretty firm feedback? Oh, she made me cry. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever yeah. shared this, or is this you know—is this something uh, you want to share? We can edit this out if you'd rather not, or not. No, I have told people, perhaps not on a on a recorded um, digital format. Uh, yeah. I've told people in, in the past before. No, so. Um, because Esther had, had written books and since she always was there whenever I asked for, for help and we'd worked together, you know, there was one person in particular that I, I knew I wanted uh, a 
their guidance and their forward. And so she was really supportive, uh, along with Jean Tobaker and Mike Cohn mm-hmm. and a few others. She, um, she re- reviewed my original draft of Scrum Mastery and said, it's good, but it would be a shame if it wasn't great, given that you've used that subtitle. And it's up to you, but this would be the feedback that I would offer you. I think it could help. And my response was, I think you're right. But that would be so hard to do. It do would take re- me so long. I'm going to quiz you a bit more on this, because we've spoken about this before, but I can't remember. But um, was this over the phone or was this on email? Skype. Okay. Yeah, in the old days of, of Skype. Good old Skype. So it was face to face. You could see, She gave you that feedback firsthand. Yeah, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't yeah. manipulated and rewritten into. No, I mean she asked me if, if I wanted it. Uh, Did she? Yeah, so she she was always one to sort of walk the talk. You know, yeah, she wasn't going to go around and inflict her help on me, uh, and she was quite clear about. Uh, well, she was she wanted me to be clear about what kind of help I was looking for, her, mm. uh, or for looking for from her. Um, uh, basically, I said you know, anything. That you can give me that you think could help help this be successful mm. and it was my first foray into the world of writing and she'd had multiple experiences yeah um, and she said so do you want me to provide some like you know editing feedback do you want me to, to let you know if there's any content that I disagree with or that you've missed uh, I said no anything on the structure the message the flow mm. anything uh, and basically, yeah, cut a long story short, I, I printed out the draft manuscript in yeah. a couple hundred pages. And I effectively had to, it wasn't just a case of highlight this bit and move it to no. that section, it was kind of rip it all up and Start completely again. restructure it. So that's where the whole um, you know, retrained type thing came from, that's where the, the sort of good to great slogans yeah. effectively came from as a result. Not that she suggested I do it, but through mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. back and forth, that collaboration. So yeah, yeah, huge inspiration. Yeah, and and, and maybe uh, you know, it could well be that what defined that your first book and just, yeah, very, very much become part of you. So yeah, a, a vital conversation at the right time, but vital mm. feedback at the uh, at a vital time. Yeah. I remember, I remember your reaction. Have you still got? Um, have you still got the first draft before it was restructured? You I binned don't it. Think so. I'm not a hoarder. Because for me, that would be like prosperity. Like, well, I'll keep on with that. That'd be, but that'd be if it's not as good, why would I want that? <laughs> I know, but it's like, you know, stick that on eBay in 20 years' time. People will think, oh, look, I've got, I've got this. It's like the original Beatles. Yeah. It's really. Just a... <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, no, it's good. It was a good chat. Yeah, they're calling time. I can, I can hear. Them. Oh, well, there's, yeah. I've got a dream cup. This squash is not going down as easily this side. Eh? But there we are. Well, that was, yeah, it was good. Another, another amazing episode. And uh, cheers, mate. Yeah, it's good to catch up again. Cheers. Chin chin. See you soon. Chin chin. Oh.